We've been going through, as you know, the different characters from the Bible, and uh, we've been looking at a number of different ones over the last few weeks. Today, we're um, coming to another character from the Old Testament, and you know what? Relationships can be difficult sometimes, can't they? I guess that's the understatement. Um, and uh, one of the most difficult challenges, perhaps, in life is finding the right person to marry. So in the story we're going to look at today, we are going to look at a king who's looking for a queen. Now, one of the king's advisors comes up with this phenomenally fantastic idea to have a beauty contest and to find the next queen. Not surprisingly, the king agrees pretty quickly to that idea. So they get all the most beautiful women in the land. They bring them all together to the, queen's, to the king's palace. Now, there's a very beautiful young girl who lives with her cousin, and it wasn't long before she caught the attention of the right people. Her name, of course, was Esther. You've heard the story before. Good. Story of Esther. Now, Esther was Jewish. She was an orphan, and she was also a refugee, but she was the one who was actually chosen to be next queen. Now, some time goes past, okay, just going to a quick summary of the, of the story. Some time goes past, and things are going fairly well for a while, but then a guy called Haman appears on the scene. Now, Haman is one of the king's advisors, and he absolutely hates the Jews. In fact, he wants them all dead. So he somehow manages to either trick or at least persuade the king to sign a decree that they should all be exterminated. Now, the, the king, not realizing that his own queen, Esther, is actually a Jew, but yet he still agrees. What is Esther going to do? She knows that she can't just walk into the presence of the king, even as queen, she's not allowed, because there's a decree. If she goes in there, uninvited, there's every chance she winds up dead. She has to wait. Will he hold out his golden scepter, a sign of welcome? The trouble is, trouble is, if she does nothing, people's lives are at stake. So we're going to pick up the story, read some Bible. Good to read some Bible. We're going to pick up a story in Esther. It's in the Old Testament, somewhere in the Middle-ish. Give you a clue if you can find it. And it's in Chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 1. It says this. When Mordecai, now Mordecai was the cousin of Esther, okay, just to get the picture. She's the cousin of Esther, okay. So Mordecai learned of all that had been done. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out of the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was greatly distressed. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, 
and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told her, him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead for him, for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Verse 10, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king into the inner courts without being summoned, the king has but one law, they, that they will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I have been called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the, in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your, fam and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast with me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. In verses 13 to 14, a question is put to Esther. Mordecai asks her to take a risk to approach the king for the sake of her people. And he says that familiar phrase, if you know the story, he says, who knows you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's found herself in this most amazing of positions. She is queen of Persia. She's in favor with the king. She is the only person who can intervene in this particular situation. What are the chances of that happening? Is this just good luck? A little bit of good fortune just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Well, you know, I'd like to suggest there's probably something more than that. In fact, I would suggest that despite the fact that this is the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned in any way whatsoever, yet it's God who is at work behind the scenes arranging for a beautiful Jewish girl to catch the eye of the king, to be invited into the king's harem, and to become queen of Persia. And all of her life experiences and training had led to this point. This is no accident. 
She is here for a purpose. She is here for a reason. This is not a random act of fate. Esther was placed by God into the king's harem in order that she might be able to intervene on behalf of her people. God had placed her exactly where she needed to be. And God has called and he has planned and he has placed and he has prepared for you to be in the situation that you find yourself in at this moment. Might not be easy. Might not necessarily be even where you want to be, but God has a purpose in where you are. He has chosen you and he has called you. Now this affects every area of your life. But actually, maybe primarily what it affects is maybe our relationship ultimately with God himself. Because he chose you. He called you and he chose you. This is what Paul talks about when we get into the book of Ephesians. That's just a beautiful, the most wonderful passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of this world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You know, I've heard it said, I, I probably have even thought it myself at times, that, that God has chosen me because he knew that one day I would choose him. Or that you are predestined because... Because actually God knew it one day that you would choose Christ. Now it's not rubbish theology. It's just not what Paul says here in the Bible. Because chapter or verse 5 cuts straight through all of that. What was it that moved God to choose you? You thought about it? What moved God to choose you? Simply for his own pleasure. His sovereign will. And your salvation is certain. And your calling is secure. Because he chose you. Before the beginning of this world. He called you. And he chose you. It's not about you. It's not about you trying to hold on to something or keep something. You are secure in his hands because he called you and he chose you. Romans 8 goes on to, to just to expand that and you've just got to listen to this. Okay, you ready? And we know that in all things God works together for good to those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. 
For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And though he predestined, he called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Shall trouble? How about hardship, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not something to be happy about? Is it not? And God has irresistibly drawn you to himself. Before the foundation of this world, he called you and he drew you and he brought you to himself. And listen, you are secure. You are secure in him. It's not because you deserve it, but God chose you in Christ. And listen, this affects every area of your life. So what that means is that the people that you will meet this week have all been planned by God for a specific purpose. It means that the situations you will find yourself in this week have all been ordained by God. It may not necessarily be easy or even, even that joyful sometimes, but I pray actually it is full. There are many moments full of excitement as you step out in faith into what God has got for you this week. But there is a reason for each one of them. I don't think for a moment that Esther could even begin to understand something of the deep theology that Paul is talking about here, but she does understand something of God. And you cannot read the book of Esther without realizing God's specific and sovereign design and timing over her life and what he could do for Esther and for Mordecai, he can do for you. God unchanged. He can do it for you. But the story of Esther also shows us something of God and the fact that God's ways are not our ways. And I have a problem with this story, if I'm honest. And my problem is this, why? Why if God could place Esther, a Jew, as queen of Persia, 
Why did he allow Haman to plot the annihilation of the Jews? Now it's worth saying that the story does end quite well. Can I encourage you, by the way, to go home? Just, just if you get a chance this week, read this story. It'll take about half an hour. It's not long to read, but read through it. Just get a, a sense of the full story. You won't be able to, to really dip in, uh, into it at this particular time. And the Jews do escape. They are rescued. They are saved. And, and Haman does get his just deserves. And everything does work out. But if you're in the middle of that situation, if you were in the middle of something like that, it would not have been easy. That's the understatement. In fact, those events would have been terrifying, depressing. The situation just seemed hopeless. Everything appeared to be lost. Yet surely God could, with one word, have prevented such fear and pain. He could have intervened in that situation in a moment. So I ask the question, why? I know some of you have gone through tragedies and pain in your own lives as we have in our family as well. And you know, that why question is difficult to answer. I'm not gonna stand here and give you some trite and easy answer because I don't have it, unfortunately, I wish I had. But what I do know is this, is that God is still in control. The story is told about a pastor's daughter who was in a serious car accident. She said she was thrown from the car. She wasn't breathing. Her lips were starting to go blue. But in the car behind her was a doctor. And in his pocket, he happened to have one of those little tracheostomy kits. And he's able to stab her in the neck, open up her airways, and he literally saved her life. Many, many years went past, and her father, the pastor, was standing at the front of, her ch front of the church on her wedding day. And he looked down at his daughter, dressed beautifully, just admiring her in this just beautiful wedding dress. He couldn't help but notice the scar on her neck. And he stopped what he was saying, and he just spoke directly to her. And he said, that scar is a memorial of God's sustaining grace over your life. But it's not pastors, no fool. He's not stupid. He knows that if God could arrange for a doctor to be driving behind her on that particular fateful day and have one of those little devices in his pocket and then both have both the, the courage and the skill to use it, he knew that God could have stopped that accident in the first place. And there are many questions that life brings up for us. I don't have the answers to suffering and to tragedy or even for a moment to begin to understand the mind of God, but God's grace will not always stop the pain, the problems or the troubles of life. He never promised that life was going to be easy or that difficult situations would just simply melt away in front of our eyes, but he did promise that his grace and his love would keep you and sustain you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, he says, my grace, better translation, my sustaining grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness and his grace sustains and enables. You know, there is nothing greater than the intensity of God sustaining grace. 
Suppose for a moment you were to take all the desire for food and for sex and for money and for fame and for power and for friends and for meaning and for security in the heart of just one human being and you would to put them all into one big container and then you should take that container and times it by the number of people alive today, let's say six billion or so, take a, give or take a few million here and there, and you take all of their desires how would that compare to the heart and the desire of God to do you good? It would be like a drop in the ocean. The heart of God is infinite. His grace will never run dry. His love for you cannot be compared. There is no intensity greater than the intensity of God to love you. And just because bad things happen and tragedies happen, it doesn't mean for a moment that God has abandoned you. William Cowper, an old hymn writer, struggled with severe depression. Yet he's able to write these words in one of his lowest moments. He says, God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Oh, fearful saint, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. And William Cowper had learned from experience that God was in control of the events of his life, even, even when they seemed their darkest and most bleakest. Esther then gives her answer to the question that Mordecai puts to her in verse 15 to 16. She says, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. What does, what does that mean? Well, it means that Esther actually doesn't know what is the outcome of her decision of her act that she's about to do. There's no special revelation from God in this situation. She just basically weighs up the situation that she faces. She has to make a decision. Either she takes a risk or she runs away. She's no way of knowing what the outcome is going to be. So she made her decision and she simply hands it over to God. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to risk it all for my God and for my people. As I've mentioned before, I grew up on a, on a dairy farm and my dad was a pedigree, pedigree Holstein Frisian breeder. He basically milked cows, but they were nice cows, okay? <laughs> um, he also bred bulls as well. Actually, he did it very successfully. He sold them all over the UK and, and Ireland. And he always, was all, always planning for that perfect genetic mix, that, just that perfect animal. But every few years we'd end up with a bull that was either aggressive or just downright dangerous. Now we generally had a very healthy distrust for all bulls 
never turn your back on a bull. Get ready to run at any moment if you can. But this particular animal was extremely dangerous. Unfortunately, there's only one answer for that. It had to be put down, had to go along to the local abattoir before it actually killed someone. So we, we me and dad, we, we backed the trailer up as close as we could into the, into the doorway where, the, where the, the bull was kept. And somehow it sort of managed to get loose. Perhaps it just sensed its fate. I don't know for sure, but you have never seen two people run so fast in their lives. Honestly, I would have, I would have, I would have beaten, what do you call him? You seen Bolt at that moment, I think, or at least been close to him, and I scaled an eight-foot wall. To this day, I have no idea how I got up and over it so quickly, but fear is a powerful motivator. And I learned that life is full of risk. And whether we like it or not, that is the reality. We face risk every single day. You can't avoid it, even if you want to. In fact, all our plans for tomorrow can be shattered just by a thousand unknowns. And it doesn't matter whether you stay at home in bed or whether you plan to go skydiving. Risk is simply part of life. And taking risk means that we can lose money, we can lose our face, we can look foolish, we can even lose our lives. And what makes it even worse, actually, it can affect other people as well, not just ourselves. We can lose their money and maybe even their life. Yet how often we sit in church with a sort of false sense of security, afraid to take any risks for the sake of the gospel or for the cause of God because we somehow foolishly think that we're going to lose a level of security that actually doesn't really exist in the first place. It is right to take risks for the gospel and for the sake of God. And risk is possible because we just don't know what the future holds. We, we just don't have all the answers, but God does. In fact, if there's one thing that God probably cannot do, he cannot take a risk. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the outcome of all of his choices. He knows the outcome of his actions before they happen. I guess it rules out the possibility of him taking a risk. You thought about as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, says in some of the Gospels how in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood. It wasn't because he didn't know what was going to happen to him. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew those slaps before he was hit. He knew that he was going to be beaten. Those, that crown of thorns, those nails were no surprise to him. Every last painful moment of his life and his death were nothing to do with risk and everything to do with love for you. But this is not the same for us. I know that some of you are nervous about giving everything over to God. But really, is that risky? to give your life into the hands of the one who knows everything about you. In fact, everything about this world, the creator of all things, is that really risky? But also, if you think of what he did for you and Jesus, as Jesus died on the cross, as he took your place, as he paid the ultimate price for your sins, such love surely demands a response of giving everything back. 
of giving all of our lives over to him. To step out in faith. Often said that faith should be spelt R-I-S-K. Risk. And if, it's one of Paul's, isn't it? If you want to see, if we want to see our churches grow, we need to be willing to take a few risks. If we want to see our friends coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared maybe to look foolish at times, to look some, to lose face at times. If we, if we want to reach out to a Muslim world or to a secular world or to an anti-God world, God will call some of you to take some risk, to risk comfort, to risk security, to maybe even risk your life for the sake of the gospel. So what are you prepared to risk for God? Can you say along with Esther, if I perish, I perish. Do you have the strength to risk losing face and look foolish for the sake of Christ, knowing that God's love will lift you up in the end? Do you have the strength to risk losing money for the cause of the gospel, knowing that our treasures are not here on earth, but our treasures are in heaven where nothing can destroy them? Do we have the strength to risk losing life in this world, knowing the promise that he who loses his life in this world will be saved for all of eternity. I'm not saying that every risky thing that we do is necessarily right. We can be stupid sometimes, but I see a lot more of those risky things are right than we think. It is right to take risks for the cause and for the sake of the gospel. In fact, if we never run any risks in life, if we never risk failure, we will never achieve anything either. Someone has said that excellence is the result of caring more than others think is wise, risking more than others think is safe, dreaming more than others think is practical, and expecting more than others think is possible. And God loves the words of William Carey, who spent most of his life as a missionary in India. He says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Or Jim Elliot, missionary deep into the Ecuadorian rainforests, who, along with four other people, lost their lives for the sake of Jesus, for preaching the gospel. He says, it is no, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the book of Esther is a story where there are no miracles mentioned, where God does not directly intervene, and where God seems strangely quiet. But it's a call for boldness in the face of uncertainty. And this morning, I believe God will be almost certainly speaking into some people's lives. And God is just maybe birthing something within your heart. And it feels risky. And yet God sometimes just feels strangely quiet in those situations. And you wish he would come with the flashing lights and the big answers, but so often he doesn't because he's asking you to step out in faith to take a risk. What do we do? 
I suggest we follow the example of Esther, verse 16. What she does, she gets some people around her and she begins to pray and fast. It's a good starting point. She prays and she fasts with a group of folks. She's obviously doing it herself, but also getting people around her. The other thing she does, she gets godly advice. Listen, we need Mordecai's in our lives who can speak just godly sense into our lives sometimes. The third thing she does, she does something. She makes a step. She takes a step. She takes a risk knowing that God's grace will sustain her. And as you step out in faith, you step out not in your own strength. You step out in God's strength by his grace. Listen, he is with you every step of the way. If you're facing a difficult challenge, a situation perhaps in life at the moment, I think the story of Esther is just a, a real encouraging one sometimes. And God wants you to know that this is his will for you. It might be painful sometimes, but God hasn't left, he hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's with you even in the darkest moments. To others, God would simply say, keep going. It might be difficult, but this is not the time to give up. Keep trusting. Keep following. Keep obeying. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. And Father, thank you that you speak, Lord, in both the subtle, but also, Lord, sometimes the dramatic as well. But Lord, we thank you as well that you've brought us together, Lord, to seek after you. And Father, we pray, Lord, now, Lord, just by your spirit, Lord, just continue to just plant your word, Lord, not my words, Lord, but your words into people's hearts. And Father, by your spirit, Lord, just bring challenge, but also, Lord, bring hope. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that our security lies in you. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. Lord, that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And Father, we pray, Lord, just bless us, we pray now in Jesus' name. taking a risk for God must first of all start with actually knowing him and I also want to encourage you if you've never taken that one step of faith to invite Jesus Christ into your life into your heart not a bad time now I want to just pray just a simple prayer if you want to join with me that's that's fine it's just a prayer of commitment to God saying God I want to follow you I want to walk with you I want to serve you just pray just pray along with me in your hearts father I love you I love you Jesus because you died for me that you taken my sin and I want to ask now if you'd forgive me forgive me for my sins come into my heart I want to make you Lord I want to make you boss of my life I want to give everything over to you, Jesus. If you've prayed that prayer, I want you to come and just chat to me afterwards. Come and tell me what you've done. As you've prayed that prayer sincerely, you can know with confidence it's God that calls you, God that saves you. He's the one that draws you to himself.
And as you step out in faith, he will not let you down. It's not risky. It may feel risky, but it's not risky to put your heart and your hands and your life in the one who knows you better than you know yourself. So Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, just come to work within our lives. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. All through the service, I've had the um, the banquet where the person, I can't remember who it was now, but I can find it in scripture, but talks about a man calling people to the banquet and uh, people came up with excuses that they'd had a new field, that they were getting married, that they'd just bought oxen and that they couldn't come. And Keith was talking about those wanting to come to the kingdom to join Jesus but I believe the Lord's talking to us all that are already in the kingdom. How much are you willing to give up and come to my banquet and do what I'm calling you to do? I love messages like Keith just preached because inside of me, I'm one of these people that's like, I, I think it's amazing to take risk for God. But then sometimes my head gets in the way or my heart gets in the way and I get a bit scared and a bit kind of like... I don't really know how to do this. And I think there's probably a lot of people in here that that message really engaged with and you're really like, I want to take risk for God. Um, and you don't really do it, not because you don't want to, but because there's something inside of you that's like, this This is, I just don't know how to do this. And I just want to encourage you like, just to get in with God and ask him to, to take that away and to break through that wall so that you can take risks. I'm going to do that too because that's my heart. I so, so want to be risky for God. Like, I always have and just get in there with God and I don't know how this even works but just ask him to, to break through that and say, actually God, I want to take risks. Give me opportunity to take risks. Take away the fear of taking risks and he will break that off in your life. I believe that today. I, uh, I preached last week on uh, getting out of the doors, and uh, but I listened to it back and I realised I'd said something. I said, I'm really scared though. And uh, over this last few years, God's been dealing with me and dealing with my heart because I love talking to people about Jesus, but over this last few years, I just haven't. And the reason I haven't is because I... I I've been walking around thinking if I, if I have one more rejection in my life it's going to kill me I just cannot go up to somebody on the street and just have one more rejection because it'll kill me just one more rejection and I'm, I'm done and God's been working and bringing healing in my heart and uh, of course I preached it on Sunday Monday I just went to Tesco's and there were a bloke just stood there they were a bit out of breath and uh, they, were on, they were on crutches. I says, are you right, sir? He says, yeah, I've just had a operation and I'm just struggling to walk. My wife's there, but I'm okay. I says, well, I'm a Christian and I, I go to a local church and I believe God heals today. Would you let me pray with you? And I prayed with him and he began to wobble and I thought it would be because of his hip. But the love and the power of God came upon his life and he started walking, he says... Oh yeah, this 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 positive thinking's good, isn't it? And it's and it and it's probably 
it's probably because uh, it's been suggested to me. And I says, I said, it's probably God. Because he loves you. He loves you so much. And I began to bless him. And he just kept wobbling and wobbling and wobbling. And I thought, oh, he's going to... But And he says, it's easing. It's easing. So on Wednesday, I'm just walking back from market and there are a bloke. And I says, are you all right, sir? And he said, know what a new knee wouldn't help with. And I says, well, I'm a Christian. And I'm from a local church just over the road there. Would you let me pray with you? He says, I says, it's in Bible. And he says, just lay a hand on on someone and they and they'll recover. I says, do you mind if I do that, sir? And I prayed in the name of Jesus. And he he says, that's better. And I prayed that the cartilage had been restored in his knee, and he began laughing. And then he just laughed his way onto the bus as I'm telling him how much God loved him. And it, Jesus is so good, isn't he? Jesus is so good. He wants us to be risk takers. 